Well, a big thank you to our choirs who have been practicing for months and months to uh, bring us just a great time of worship. Indeed, I believe it's been a wonderful time of worship already. Uh, probably a good time to mention that uh, we are always in need of more people for our choirs. If you uh, would like to join them, I think it's obvious whom you should speak to. Our choir directors are uh, very talented, and they can really uh, turn anyone into a hand chimer or a singer, and so I just want to encourage you to do that. Well, as we come on this special day to worship the Lord, to rejoice in His resurrection, before we look into His Word, may we beseech the risen Lord for His aid this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being chosen as your people to respond to the gospel and to the resurrection, even knowing that our response is your grace. Thank you for this morning that we can come and look at your scriptures, to look at the narrative of the gospels, to know and to understand, even in real time, what those who were there, who touched you, who saw you, who saw you die, how they responded, and how that translates even to how we respond this morning. Use us this morning to encourage, to edify, to build up and grow the believers, to challenge those who don't have a right relationship with you. Above all, Lord, we ask that you would glorify yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. With any major news story or historical event, the reactions among the populace will vary. Sometimes the same individual will have more than one response. All in all, you've experienced many of these as you turn on the news, as you see what is going on around us, even as you drive to work perhaps over the past few weeks and seeing tree after tree downed on the road and blocking your way. And these reactions can range from shock, I can't believe this has happened again, Dismay, what is our world coming to? Gratitude, I'm so glad that they are safe. Or even ignorance or outright denial. The re this reality is true even of one of the most significant events of world history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As with all major events in world history, the reactions to this one are varied, and they were varied, not just in the response to the gospel today, but also in the various bystanders and contemporaries of Jesus Christ himself. Despite centuries of prophecies culminating in Jesus' own explanation of what he had to endure on the cross, the resurrection was a surprise. Both the followers of Jesus as well as his enemies were shocked that he was alive. Understandably so. They saw him die. They buried him. Some of the people we will see and how they reacted, they actually were the ones who killed him and verified that he was dead. And the reason they were all shocked is because three days prior, Jesus had been crucified. His body had literally been nailed to two pieces of wood that formed a T or a cross. And that cross was lifted up so that he hung there until he was dead. 
The Roman soldiers in charge of the crucifixion were not novices. They did this for a living. They were those who crucified day after day, hour after hour. They knew how to kill, and they knew how to confirm a kill. Jesus was dead. Why? Well, Galatians 1, 3, and 4 tells us the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us from the present evil age. In other words, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died for our sins. But why? Why did he need to die for our sins? Romans 5, 8, and 9 are helpful. It says this, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Well, what does that mean? It means because the world is filled with sinners, everyone who has ever lived save for Christ Jesus himself, we have all sinned. From Adam and Eve to however long people will exist on this earthly plane, sinners meaning they have violated the character, the will of God. Some murderers, some doing heinous crimes, sure, but also those who just get angry once in a while, or even just once, would be enough to render the wrath of God. And so, because sinners are alienated from a holy God who cannot stand sin, who cannot be with sin, whose very character You understand? Not just what he does, not just what he desires, but his very essence cannot tolerate sin. And so when mankind, which was created by him, sinned, they, we, must all face his wrath. And the only way that that wrath could be appeased is through someone to be the victim of that wrath. Someone needed to pay the price. Someone needed to suffer for the sins. There had to be a sacrifice to pay the penalty for the sins of the entire world. But the penalty had to be in line with the holy demands of God. The demands that we see in the Old Testament, in which sins were temporarily dealt with through the sacrifice of a perfect, unblemished animal, now permanently dealt with through the perfect sacrifice God's own Son, Jesus Christ, God, very God, 100% God, but 100% man, which, by the way, explains how he could physically die. Those who confess Jesus as Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved from their own sin and the penalty that that sin has secured. The wrath of God against sin is a real place called hell. That is the gospel message. And I stand before you on this Resurrection Sunday as a preacher of the Word of God to tell you that everything I have just said is absolute garbage. It is a fairy tale for the desperate and naive, if not for one very important point the resurrection. Without the resurrection, it is all useless. On the third day after death, Jesus was raised from the dead, proving that he is God, proving that he is victorious over sin and death, and proving that the Father accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. 
as important as this message is, it is more than a message. It is a historical reality. And as with all history, it helps us to go beyond just the facts and into the narrative to see things from the point of view of those who are there. Fortunately for us, there is a record. Several, in fact, in the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament that helps us see how people reacted to Jesus' resurrection. This morning, as we look at these reactions, I invite you to join me in the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, as we see the five different reactions or responses to the empty tomb, to the physical living presence of Jesus post-death. In other words, five different responses to the resurrection. Matthew 28, the first that we see, the first response to the resurrection, a response that most of us have this morning, is delight. Delight. Look at verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. This is after the crucifixion. Right after the crucifixion began the Sabbath, which the Israelites, the Jews, uh, had to honor. And so they couldn't do anything with the grave, with the body. They had to pause. They couldn't work. And so as soon as the Sabbath was over, early on Sunday morning, dawn of Sunday morning, we see here, these ladies who were friends, followers of Jesus Christ, they come to the grave. Because the Sabbath was over, they were able to buy spices, which according to Luke, they brought to put finishing touches on the anointing process of the body. Really, as, as vulgar as it may sound, it was a mummification, which involved cloths and clothing and spices to preserve and anoint and honor the body of Jesus Christ. And again, they couldn't finish this before because the Sabbath restrictions had begun and they observed those. Mark and Luke also tell us that there were several other women with them. Luke says several women that are unnamed. Look at verse 2. We're still in Matthew 28. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. What this is, is back then, as there are today throughout the world, various different kinds of tombs, graves. This one, if you're familiar with the story, you know that a rich man who was a follower of Jesus donated his tomb, so it was very elaborate. And it would have been simply a, a small cave or a hole that was hewn into the side of a rock or a mountainside. And to block it, of course, you don't want a dead body just to be open to the elements where people could see it or grab it or whatever, they would take this huge stone in a small groove or channel and they would roll it over the entrance of the tomb of the cave. An earthquake comes. This is not at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but even just the angel of the Lord descending. This angel, which these women, there's no way they could have rolled this stone. It would have been huge. It would have been very heavy. And this angel, you can almost picture it. He rolls away the stone the supernatural power and just kind of sits there. <laughs> What's going on, ladies? What are you looking for? 
See, there's a great earthquake. And as we've seen before, God uses earthquakes as a sign of something miraculous happening. This one, there was one at the death of Jesus. This one, as the angel descends from heaven to declare to his followers that he is not there. Look at verse 3. And his appearance, and keep in mind, we're just talking about an angel here. Not God or the resurrected Jesus. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. There's two guards still there. The guards, these are trained Roman soldiers. And if you've ever studied ancient history, you know that these were some of the toughest men that have ever lived. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, completely ignoring the guards, they're not important. Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. They go, the tomb is empty. Then he continues in verse 7, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So the angel tells them what has happened, and he invites them to see for themselves. Think about those powerful words that we just read, that the angel declared, He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. We're familiar with these words, especially the words, He has risen, but just think about it. Think about going to a grave, and someone said, Oh, he's not here. You were there when they put him in. He's not here anymore. And of course, a lot of things were probably swirling in their minds in that half second before he then declared he is risen. He wasn't taken by the Jews to hide him from you guys. He wasn't thrown into the pit, the burning pit that we saw a few weeks ago by the Roman guards. He's not here because he is risen. And they are standing at a grave in which they are sure there was a dead body. And now here comes their reaction in verse 8. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Obviously, we get just the facts here. We are not told what's going on in their minds. We get a glimpse by how they responded. But could you just imagine being there? And Jesus, we're told, just greets them. Shalom. The risen Savior. And in their delight... They took hold of his feet and worshipped him. This is true worship here. This is a true understanding and delight in the risen Lord. You would think they'd be like, whoa, wait, what? <laughs> Are you serious? They would have been, I would have been dizzy. I would have fallen over. Things would have been spinning. What is going on? But in hearing the empty tomb, as well as seeing Jesus himself, the women had great joy. They worshipped him. But I want to point out that even in seeing the empty tomb before seeing the resurrected Jesus, they were filled with excitement and joy. In other words, 
all they had need of was something divine to tell them that he is risen. They had delight before even seeing the risen Lord. As believers living for Jesus Christ, there is much in our lives that brings us joy. There is much in the Christian life that brings you true joy. Not worldly happiness, not emotional happiness, true biblical joy rooted in Him. A piece of good news that you know is from Him. A milestone in our child's life. A worshipful time of prayer. An encouraging conversation in biblical fellowship. All blessings from the Lord. And as believers, we embrace these moments. We rejoice in them. But we must never forget that it is all made possible for the believer because of the resurrection. And the greatest delight we have is knowing that we have eternal life. That we will one day live in glory with our Savior forever. Again, only possible because He is there. He is alive. He is risen. Not only in securing our salvation, but also in being the first fruits of our future resurrection. Promising us, going ahead of us, saying that we will, there is a guarantee, be resurrected in bodily form one day and be with Him. 1 Corinthians 15 is very clear on that. Christian. Delight in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which centers around His death, yes, but a death proven effective by the resurrection from that death. Delight in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is another reaction that we will see here as we continue in verses 11 through 15, and it is quite different than delight. It is not even sadness or trouble. It is deception. Deception. Look at verses 11 through 15. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. The chief priests being that body of leaders uh, within Judaism that really wanted Jesus dead. Verse 12. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night And stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. Don't worry. We're going to take care of it. We'll cover for you. You're not going to get fired. Then verse 15, And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews as is to this day. Naturally, the guards were afraid. Not only because of what they had just seen, but also the ramifications of failing at their job. They go to the Sanhedrin, the leaders of Judaism, and tell them what happened. The leaders consult together, the chief priests and the elders, and they come up with the plan. Surprise, surprise, their plan involves bribing people with money. This is in many ways how this whole thing started, with giving the silver to Judas to deceive and to turn in Jesus. They bribed the soldiers, and we are told the amount is quite large. And what they are bribing the soldiers to do is to say they fell asleep, and while they were asleep, the disciples came and stole Jesus' body. 
as if these trained soldiers would sleep so deeply that they wouldn't hear the number of disciples that would be needed to roll that stone away, the creaking and grumbling of that stone, and then somehow sneaking a dead body, which would have been significantly heavier than a three-day-old dead body because of all the anointing with the wraps, the clothing, and the spices. Now, the soldiers are in a very tough position. A Roman guard back then who falls asleep at his post would face disciplinary action and the Jews are telling them to lie and say that they failed at their job. On the other hand, who's going to believe the story about the angel? Who's going to believe the resurrection from them? And notice in verse 14 that the shrewd Jews also assure the soldiers that they will even help if this gets to Pilate's ears, which it probably won't. So they take the bribe, which will offset the damage done to the reputations as guards. Even if they lose their jobs, they are set with this money. Now the seriousness of what is happening here is heightened by the fact that the reason the guards were there in the first place, this is not normal to have trained Roman soldiers guarding a tomb, but they were put there because the enemies of Jesus Christ were afraid that the disciples would steal Jesus' body and claim, see, he's resurrected. Look at back at chapter 27, verses 62 through 66. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees, again, these are the bad guys in this story, gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he, Jesus, was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. And in a twist of irony, we now have the Jewish leaders bribing the soldiers to tell people that the disciples did steal the body. You see the point here. Put guards there because if there's Roman guards there, there is no way anyone could get into that tomb. And now you're going to tell everyone you fell asleep? Roman soldiers trained to stand on the top of a guard post or a tower for hours on end throughout the night, listening for a trumpet call, warning of enemies, looking for horses in the distance, fell asleep? And yet this was the very thing. The story they are now submitting to the world, the lie, is what they were saying, we can't let this happen. Today, we still see a response of deception in the resurrection. Not as blatant as what we just read, because that would really only make sense for those at that time and place. You think about the deception, those who attack the gospel, attack the resurrection. Sure, there are vocal, famous atheists who engage in public debate with Christian apologists. And even the Scriptures tell us that if you can debunk the resurrection, you debunk all of Christianity. 
Again, 1 Corinthians 15 says that we are to be pitied by the world. We are to be considered fools if there is no resurrection because nothing else could be true if he did not rise from the dead. And if the Scriptures even say this, then naturally the enemies of the gospel who want to disprove the gospel, who want to shut down Christianity, will attack that very point, the resurrection. You notice this. Even the atheists in public debate who are scholarly and well-trained in these things, they do not give in to social pressure and political correctness. They do not bother debating Christian theologians regarding our views on abortion or homosexuality because they understand that even that does nothing. To attack the gospel, you must attack the resurrection. But there is a deception today that is less blatant and perhaps less obvious and clear than theological debate on a world stage. Firstly, that deception is found in every false religion, including the terrifying religion of humanism, which is that system of thought that puts prime importance on man and his desires rather than on the supernatural. Even someone who rejects the lordship of Christ and has never been introduced to the resurrection does not have to say, I don't believe in the resurrection because he doesn't even know about the resurrection, is being deceived or is deceiving himself. There is a deception in our world system. There is a deception in every single religion in the world and in world history outside of authentic biblical Christianity. And what do they deny? They deny the resurrection. There is a third response to the resurrection that we see that is along the same lines as deception, but perhaps less intense, although just as dangerous if the mind is not changed. And that is doubt. Doubt. Look at verses 16 and 17 of Matthew 28. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus has, had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. Turn ahead to the Gospel of Mark, to chapter 16. We'll be back to Matthew 28 if you want to keep your finger there. But turn ahead to Matthew, then Mark is next. Mark 16, verses 10 through 14. one of the witnesses of what we read earlier. She went and reported to those who had been with him, the followers of Jesus Christ, while they were mourning and weeping, mourning and weeping because they are mourning the death of Christ. Verse 11, when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. Remember, they were walking with him for quite a while and said, what's going on? What are you guys talking about? Jesus is saying. And he says, are you the only one around who has not heard the events of the past few days? And so they start explaining all of it. And then at the end of that conversation, Jesus opens their eyes so that they see that he is the risen Lord. 
These are the two that we're talking about here in Mark 16, 12. And in verse 13, they went away and reported it to the others, the other followers, but they did not believe them either. Afterward, he, Jesus, appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. People told them, Jesus is risen. They didn't believe the ladies. They didn't believe the two that walked on the road with the risen Savior. In Luke 24, we are told that they thought they were seeing a spirit, the disciples, until he invited them, saying in Luke 24, verse 39, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. You know, because of the record that we have in John chapter 20, Thomas gets a bad rap as a doubter, earning the nickname Doubting Thomas, which is a common expression in our day for anyone who doubts anything. But what we see here from the Gospels is that all the disciples doubted. They didn't believe when the report came to them from those who had witnessed, spoken to, touched, worshipped, fallen at the feet of the risen Savior. When we talk about those who doubt the resurrection today, we tend to think of unbelievers. There are some who are here with us this morning, and we're so glad that you are here. Perhaps you or others see Christianity lived out in the lives of believers. They see our joy. They see our difference. They see our faith. And it seems true to them. That is real. That person is different. He believes it. He holds to it. Many non-Christians want it to be true. They just can't get themselves to wholly put their trust in Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. They are doubting, even though someone who has experienced and encountered the risen Savior is telling them He is risen. They doubt. But I believe there's also a sort of practical or applied doubt among believers. The theology, the fact, the truth of the resurrection, we have no problem with. But living out our faith on the basis of a living, resurrected Lord is often hindered, not because we don't believe the resurrection took place, but because we don't live it out. We don't embrace its reality in our lives. So what do you mean? What, what does that look like? Well, for example... We may not truly trust God in our trials or see His sovereignty in situations we are uncomfortable with, recognizing that our risen Lord is with us, guiding us, sovereign over all things. Maybe because you are saved, you don't see the need to repent of your sin because you fall back on the unchangeable nature of your salvation rather than in a relationship with a loving, holy, and living God. Or maybe you simply live too much for today rather than looking forward to your eternity in your resurrection with the resurrected Lord. If we truly believe it and we live it out, 
we will not be consumed with here and now. We will be longing for that day. The disciples knew the prophecies. The disciples heard Jesus tell them what was about to happen. And although they didn't fully understand it, nor do we, if we're honest, they did have the facts, they did have the truth of the resurrection. But after he was crucified, they still mourned, they still wept, they still doubted. But that was before they met the resurrected Lord. Christian, you have met the resurrected Lord. Don't go through life weeping and mourning as a result of a doubt of the power and promises of Jesus Christ, who I assure you is alive and well. Response number four, very similar to delight, is devotion. Devotion. Look back at the woman's reaction in Matthew 28 and verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And now the disciples in verse 17. Though some doubted, when they saw him, they worshipped him. Luke 24, verses 52 and 53 tell us this. And they, after worshipping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. This is true devotion. And we see there not just when he was present with them. And we know even after he ascended, even when he was no longer physically with them, they continued to be devoted to godliness in light of their God. Even doubting Thomas, when Jesus invited him and he saw and touched the hands and feet of his Savior, declared, my Lord and my God. This is worship. This is what we do. And you know what that beauty, you know what the beauty of this is in our narrative this morning? Delight always turns in to devotion. You say, yes, of course. In many ways, you could say the same thing. But you know what else we see that is so wonderful for the believer and unbeliever here this morning? Doubt turned into devotion. And although it is not in our text this morning, we know that even deception has turned into devotion as many in false religions, including atheism, have turned to the resurrected Lord in faith. We all were deceived at some point, whether following another religion or another man's teachings, when we were not following the Lord and that deception was revealed to us, the scales fell from our eyes, and now, in our delight, we have devoted our lives to Him. Now, there's a final response that I want to look at that we see in the last three verses in Matthew 28, which many of you know as the Great Commission, the Great Commission to evangelism and preaching the gospel. Look at verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that is a wonderful promise to cap off the chapter before he ascends to promise them as a resurrected Lord, he is always with them. The Great Commission tells all believers to go and make disciples of all the nations. This is not a call to discipleship as we know it in terms of meeting with someone one-on-one once a week or whatever it may be, though that is helpful and important. What he means by disciples is converts, disciples of Christ, followers of Christ. How do you do that? How do you make a disciple? Preach the gospel. That's why we call it the Great Commission. They are to be baptized in obedience in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then we don't just go, well, oh, you want to follow the Lord? Good. Praise God. Glad I handed you that tract. We'll be out here again next Sunday afternoon. No, you bring them in. Then you teach them to observe all that Christ commanded us. Then we bring in that concept of one-on-one or group discipleship to teach them what it means now that they call themselves a Christian. So what is the fifth and final response that we see here in the Great Commission? It is declaration. Declare the goodness of God. Declare the resurrected Lord. We know this was fulfilled by the disciples. Mark 16.20 says, And they went out and preached everywhere. And then, of course, you have the book of Acts, also known as the Acts of the Apostles, that speaks of these men going out and spreading the gospel. We know Christians are called not just to believe in the resurrection, but to respond to it, to respond to it in holiness, in godliness, in repentance, in worship. And all of that must include declaring the praises and the glorious name of our Lord and Savior, preach the Word. Declare it. Don't just declare it here. Don't just declare it to your kids. Don't just declare it in your heart of hearts when you're on on your knees in your prayer closet. Declare it out there. Some of you, at the break of dawn, are going to run to Target to buy up all the discounted Easter candy to eat the rest of the year. I know who you are. You give my kids chocolate bunnies at Halloween. No, I'm just kidding. No one's ever done that. It's kind of gross. Please don't. There are people who are talking about it today. There's a park. The largest park in Burlingame is right there. And some of you, as you drive home, you're going to be like, what are all those colorful things on the ground, all those kids running around? It's an Easter egg hunt. I think every main major park in the Bay Area this weekend has had an Easter egg hunt open to the public for all kids. Your alma maters, your high schools, your old schools are holding Easter egg hunts. People are talking about it. People are thinking about it. Declare the goodness of God. Preach the gospel. 
And when Easter is over, we're stuck right in between Easter and Christmas. No one thinks about it. No one cares. Preach the word. Tell them, because we care. And you have this joy in you. You have this call to the Great Commission because you care. And you know he's alive. You're not inviting him to a grave. You're not inviting her to worship a demigod that has died long ago, the pharaohs of Egypt or whoever it may be. You are calling them, inviting them to fall at the feet to worship a risen Savior. And so this Resurrection Sunday, we see five different responses to that resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is delight, there's deception, there's doubt, there's devotion, and there's declaration. 2,000 years later, and we still see all of these today. If you cut through my fancy alliteration, you cut through even all that we've seen. The most important thing that you need to take away from the resurrection this morning is a question. And that question for you, whether you believe in the resurrection or not, whether you are a believer or not, whether you're here in person or watching on the live stream, the question is this. What is your response? What's your response going to be? Will you respond with joy and worship all the time? Will you take that worship to the world and declare that He is risen and make disciples? Some of you here doubt. And that doubt may even lead to deception. Pursuing false religions that are more palatable to you or just wiping your brow and say, phew, glad that's over with. You happy now? I came to church with you. My friends, thank you for coming. And let me assure you, as you sit in this room, there is nobody here to deceive you except yourself. Convince yourself that this is not true, perhaps because you don't want to give up what you think you need to give up. Perhaps you don't want to give your life to Christ. And I got to tell you, I feel you. It makes perfect sense because everyone else sitting around you, we were there at one point. But the beauty of this reality is that there is an invitation for you too to join us in having eternal life. And would you consider this truth of not just the existence of God, but of His plan of salvation that is offered to you this morning and always. And our prayer for you, dear friends, is that you, like Thomas, will have your doubt removed and cry out, My Lord and my God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful, wonderful and glorious truth to look at the resurrection. 
we can't even imagine what it was like in your sovereignty in the grave and post-resurrection to have your closest earthly friends doubt and question that this was even true. I pray, Father, that whatever form this may take, whether it's in the midst of our Christianity and our worship and rejoicing and proclaiming the resurrection, there are times of doubt. The kind of doubt that allows us to let sin go on a little too long before it is repented of or dealt with. The kind of practical doubt that ignores your sovereignty in the midst of difficult trials, that turns to worldly things, things we can buy, things we can consume, things that can give us ungodly advice rather than turning to our risen Savior. Maybe the doubt, Lord, is for those who don't know you. It's doubt that is flat-out deception, deceived by the world, deceived by their hardness of heart. May you do what you have done in the rest of us in those hearts this morning, that you would melt the ice of pride in their hearts, that they would come to you in a full saving knowledge of you and embracing the reality of your perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection. And to that end, Lord, we pray and seek your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, would you stand with